The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joe Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 7200. That's 72000 and download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you wonder how to recognize your next best customer when they show up online, show up on your website, show up somewhere else? How do you know which person is going to be your next best person? To answer that question, Max Kirby. Max, welcome to the show. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me on. Hey, man. So, so you do a pretty interesting uh, thing. You uh, analyze data. Now, data 20 or 30 years ago, I remember it being the, the most dry. It was almost like, like being an actuary. It was horrible. Yep. Uh, apparently, uh, it, it's a little sexier now. It's what it seems like to me. Yeah, it's gotten a little bit better than the actuarial tables, <laughs> although we still use tables. So what... Uh, like, what do you look at? What kind, like, like, what kind of data do you look at? What are you, what are you trying to figure out? Just give us some basics. Yeah, I mean, after the dot-com bust, the dominant model that showed up that's made the internet what it is, monetization of individuals' data, right? It's customer data. And that's what Google and Facebook and everybody else runs on. That's the type of data that we focus on is data about us, our intentions, what we want, what we might know we want, what we might want without knowing it. All of these questions that kind of blend. Right, what we don't know yet that we will right. want that's, soon. That is the, that's the inception layer. That's the really persuasive layer, <laughs> if you can get into it. And then eventually, like a great salesperson, getting somebody to want what they really didn't want before. <laughs> that's right. And it's, and it's interesting, Joel, because we're also finding, you know, because we, we help businesses figure out how to do this. We also... Uh, do a lot of research in the space about what customer sentiment looks like. And specifically, we've been able to identify this, this kind of interesting fact about those who are able to get someone to want something that they didn't previously want. It's that they have information that the person they're trying to persuade doesn't know that they have. That's, that's the thing. 
Yeah. You know, I would, I would say that um, every great salesperson yeah. understands that very well. I don't know that they know how to translate it uh, into computers. I, I remember so well the movie Wall Street from 1985, and Gordon Gecko says that information is the most important commodity there is. You know, and it, it uh, and so we understood this, you know, 35, 40 years ago, we understood it well. You've taken it to some new level. What's the new level? In other words, is it about leaving people out of the loop and having computers do the work or, or what is it? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's two things and if you can do them well, right? The, the first is, can you have information that your competitors don't have about what your customers want? That's number one. The second is, can you take action on it whether or not your, your, your competitors have it faster than your competition. And those are really the two, the two end all be alls. If you can have information that your competition doesn't have and you can take action on it faster than them, you are intrinsically more competitive and you'll, you'll really start to blow by them. So we break that down into things that you know, things that you know you don't know, um, and then things that you need to know that you don't know. And whether you're getting that from marketing activation, you know, and you get a report back about what's working, whether or not people are actually logging into your website and giving you their information, their, you know, the first party data approach, um, which is usually one of the best if you can do it, right? Or whether you're able to do this at an aggregate level, um, you're really trying to do the same thing. You're trying to get down to what do you know about what your customers want. And then let's say that you knew it. And this is actually a big problem for a lot of our clients today. Let's say that you knew it. What would you do? Right? If I gave you the mind of God and you could understand everything about the customer's demand and what they would need and their, and their desires, would you actually be able to change anything about how your business operates? Would you make investments in a different way? Would you change the content that you would uh, put in front of them from a marketing perspective, would you realize that they have to skip the line at your customer service uh, at your call center, right? And get them to the front of the line so that they don't churn. Um, there's so many ways to break it down because it, it is true at the end of the day, what, what you know, you can take action on and therefore um, what you don't know, you can't. All right. So there's an A part and there's a B part. The A part is gathering information the B part yep. is taking action on the information that you just gathered. And, and there's a bridge there too. There's a bridge between those. So actually it's the, it's the middle. Yes, it's collecting it, then doing something with it. But where this really follows people up, where they aren't able to figure it out, you know, is where it's naturally difficult, which is how do you take the information in and then decide what to do with it? And this is where digital identity is, is the single key that you have to get right. Okay, so let's let's um, let's let's start at the beginning because uh, you know a lot of us are pretty familiar with uh, you know the the way that you gather information on the internet. You know, you might uh, put out uh, a landing page. Uh, there might be the concept of an ethical bribe. In other words, we'll give you a little a little uh, piece of information or a little white paper, a little something. If you'll give us your email address, your phone number, tell us a few things. Okay, so. Uh, that's kind of how it's been done for a long time, 20 years, more than 20 years, whatever it is. But that's that's kind of how it's been done. Uh, what I notice, uh, it still may be done that way, but then companies are buying all this other data from uh, Costco about what kinds of uh, 
string beans they buy and what kind of, you know, uh, soda pop they drink and what, what brand of toilet paper they use and all this other stuff. And they're able to build these enormous files uh, just based on that first little bit of information. So, I mean, is that kind of where it's going? Is this, is that right? Or, or is there a lot more to it? So that is becoming the, the default way of getting the most information is to collect some information that leads you to other, to other pieces of information. You know, for instance, if I, if I were to ask you or any of your listeners, you know, pose this question to yourself, what is the single most important piece of information you need to collect about your customers? You might think about something that's germane to the way that you would satisfy the demand that you can detect. But if you take it from a pure data lens, the thing you want is their phone number. And that's because I can take the phone number and I can find their address. And I can take the phone number and the address and I can find a likelihood of how many cars they have in the garage. And I can take the phone number and the address and how many cars and I can look at their Experian data set and impute something like their credit worthiness. All of this is possible. These are not, by the way, fictitious examples. This is actually how that is done. That is how the, the data brokerages work. And this is also why data privacy is becoming such a big thing is because you know, everyone's kind of getting into the exchange of information and then the exchange of the monetization of information game. But you know, just giving someone your phone number so that they can do something with it, there's nothing wrong with that. Makes sense. Every business needs to understand something if we want businesses to serve us, which we do. Okay. Now, when you asked the question, what piece of information would you want? I, I, I went to something else. What'd you go for? Building profiles on thousands or millions of people. I was thinking about one guy sitting across from me. Yeah. And if I knew this one thing about him, I'd be able to get him to move on buying my stuff. So, are, are we talking about millions of people or are we talking about head to head? Well, it depends, right? I mean, is your business serving millions of people or is it serving head to head? Are you doing white glove service there? You know, in the, in the B2B realm, you probably don't need uh, the phone number except to call them back, right? And you're not going to do a lot of complex issues. Although some people are. Some people in the B2B realm, I am seeing that happen. I immediately, of course, I don't think like a high volume because I'm, I'm not in the consumer business and I deal with a smaller pool of people. Uh, so my, my model's a little different, but, but I want to explore this because I want to understand it and I want our audience to understand it. And when you said I want the phone number, I'm thinking immediately, yeah, if I had the phone number, I'd call the guy up and I'd learn everything I need to know about him. You know, because I, I'd work the phone and I'd work the guy and, you know, work out. So, I mean, I actually concluded the same thing for enormously different reasons than you. So, uh, so let's take your path and go down the, maybe the consumer side where you're building some model or a profile or an avatar of a person, uh, who then comes back to us later. Okay. So you gather up all this information and, and what's the goal of, of just, is it just to be as voluminous as possible? Well, so it's, it's, not, it's not to go for volume because what you're looking for is signal, which is, of course, the opposite of noise. I mean, this is where the like, more data, more problems factor comes in. And it's, and it's very true. I mean, folks who have really large data files, most of that stuff is useless if it's been there for like 10 years, right? Because everybody has changed. And so if one of your customers changes their address and that matters for your business in some substantial way, um, that happens over the course of 10 years. And so if you're not using your data, you won't have clean data. So it's really more about the use of the data itself and what information you need to be able to use that. So I'll give you an example. Um, every business at this point will have 
a website or should, right? Not as many websites as I think will be the case in the future are building login functionality to those websites. Now, when somebody logs in, you can differentiate them from traffic coming from somewhere. You know it's them, or at least you know it's them to the extent that they let you know it's them. You know, putting aside the maybe people are using multiple email addresses and all that sort of stuff. Um, but what do you really know? Well, you, you know their email address. You, sure, yeah, they, they create an account for some reason, right? Takes a couple clicks to do that, so it goes to reason that entropy would say they're not going to do that unless they have some reason. So that tells us why, that it makes us ask the question why, right? And that, that's the start of the data science that, that we're doing now. And I mean, that's a, that's a very simple version of what now you have to get machines to do because at scale, no one can humanly do this. But at the same, at the same time, it's, it's as simple as a conversation. And that's what you're really trying to do is you're trying to have a conversation, right? You're trying to listen to what, what you hear, change what you say based on what you heard, repeat. And that's, that's as natural as talking to a client and figuring out their needs. But it also can be done now at massive scale, you know, by, by somebody who's running a customer data platform to be able to identify you and then figure out what you need, usually for very good reasons, right? There is always this patina of the creepiness or the collection of data. I, I think that we should be using data because it allows our businesses to operate better in many ways. Um, there are even some governments that are starting to put in digital society programs to create a public good out of intent data uh, because they believe that the velocity of money will be faster if they do that because more Demand will be known by more people trying to supply that demand, and it'll be intrinsically more competitive. Explain that, because I, I talk about the velocity of money all the time. Sure. And, and so how does that correlate to, uh, to increased demand and buying and so forth? Yeah, let me, let me attack it this way, right? If you, if you think about anything that gets in the way of the velocity of money, which it's not all A's or B's, but one of the things that gets in the way are market failures. From a, from a purely economist definition, a market failure right? And the most common technical market failure is the failure to recognize demand. That is, that is the fundamental, I mean, billions of dollars of advertising every year is, are spent on ads that no one wants to see, that no one would click, no one would care, you're not going to persuade them, but they still get spent. And, and even though it's at, you know, tiny little CPAs, um, there's still money being lost. And so that money is intrinsically valuable and it's being basically blasted into nowhere. I mean, you're seeing an ad for something you'll never buy. And that's, that's part of the efficiency of our, of our advertising. That's right. And so think of it like this. If you knew exactly what I was in the market for, right. And, and when, and maybe what kind, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to buy um, skis or something and you knew I wanted uh, blue and elliptical ones, if you could get down to that clarity, that's what I mean by signal. Right. What we have today with the internet is a, a, a lot of systems all trying to approximate to guess what you want and then to show you possible advertisements for that. But you and I know, everyone knows, they get it wrong all the time. We always see ads that we don't necessarily want. That's a market failure. That is. That's the failure to recognize demand. It seems like it's getting a lot better because, you know, as a consumer, here's kind of what I see. So, um, 
I'm sitting here talking to my wife and we're talking about a new kind of car. So we're looking at a car. Next thing you know, uh, you know, Facebook is showing me ads on cars and Amazon is showing me ads on cars. And if I, I talk to Alexa, if I, if I happen to mention that we're buy, looking at buying a car, Alexa's going to over here, we're buying a car. And then you can see it over and over again. It's, it's very, very demonstrable that if you look at a commercial uh, or an ad of any kind for, for a car, for a vitamin, uh, for a moving truck, I mean, you'll get a slew of stuff related to those things. So there, there must be sniffers that are paying attention to what we're doing all over the place from all different companies. They cross-pollinate each other. Now, imagine if you brought that to the nth state, just for a second, get philosophical with me on this. Imagine if you brought that to the nth state where everything you could want is available. These, this is what some governments are moving towards. They're trying to make it so that there's a marketplace for information to be able to say, I am Max Kirby and I'm in the market for the following things so that there's no more need to show me lots and lots and lots of ads. Maybe there would be to expose me to new things, but if they can pick up on what I actually need, I should just be given offers. That should be, I should be routed. That assumes you know you need, but a lot of stuff in the United States of America that's sold to consumers is not exactly an essential good. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we just don't need, but we want it. Or, yeah, you know, listen, I just, um, I've just been listening to this podcast on uh, the Diamond Wars and then the development of, of De Beers. And they took these rocks that were worthless. Oh, this conversation and, always and gets I, me. Uh, hoarding yeah, yeah. Supply, I love this, you know, the, by hoarding the supply uh, and then leaking them out very slowly, uh, they created some, uh, you know, some price, some price elevation by, you know, by creating demand, they've got to create more demand. So they start running advertisements in the 1940s. And, you know, because women didn't used to get diamonds. They, they didn't get diamonds in, in the old days. And, and then they did the same campaign in Japan when they had some surplus. So advertisers have convinced us that something that really was worthless is worth a lot. Yeah, now, now if you could tell my girlfriend about that podcast, you know, Joel, that would be, a, that would, that would be doing me a favor. <laughs> Well, listen, uh, you <laughs> yeah, but it's it's so true. It is very true. That was manufactured but, demand. But you know, what the De Beers family had was a lot of supply, and they made demand. Some people find demand, and then they build supply. You know, those are both viable business models. The point is, if somebody said, uh, "Okay, Joel, write a list of all the things that you need," uh, that wouldn't be on my list. But next thing you know, it wiggles its way onto my list. So. You can't ask people to write a list because we're not as smart as we think. We're, we're very influenceable, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about the modern equivalent of this, right, the search engine manipulation effect is what it's called. What you are shown on a given search is different depending on who you are. It's not just the world of keywords anymore. And we have this false belief that what we see in search engines is the unbiased truth and machines are bringing it to us and it's just whatever it is, right? That's not true. Those machines, other machines, are learning what we want to feed us what they think we want. And of course, they're also, there's a business interest there, right? There's, a, there's ads going on um, to try to bring us monetized versions of what we're looking for. If you do it really egregiously, you get noticed. If you do it not so egregiously, subtly, you can, you can really change people's minds slowly. 
Um, and different advertisers will prefer different strategies. And so it becomes a market in and of itself. But this is the market of persuasion. And it is all based on, can I identify you? Because here's the flip of it. The flip of it is, if I can't identify who you are, then it's very hard for me to take what I think someone wants and attach it to you so that I know next time, or I know, for instance, when it's purchased. Do you know how many ads are running around the, ad, the, the advertising world today for things people already bought, but the machines don't know that yet. What they do know is that they, were, they, they have an in-market signal, it's called, right? They've detected that much, but they don't know that that in-market signal has been satisfied. They don't have a supply signal or, or, or an equivalence. They should shut down those ads or at least show me, you know, the accessory that goes with my purchase or something like that. But, but they often don't because those systems are not connected. So, so that does business. that mean that uh, it's just another thing for us all to look forward to? <laughs> for, for people developing that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot. It's, in, in CPG and retail, folks are onto this. And they're, you know, churn is the new growth for, for where we are today. And so they're looking at, uh, I'll give you two examples, two interesting ones. First is, if something's out of stock, stop running ads for it. <laughs> Sounds simple, right? But there's a lot of ads that go out for things that if you actually clicked on it, it wouldn't be in stock. It's just a complete waste. But again, it's, it's the same. It's the supply. The inventory management system is not integrated with the data management platform, which is the, the way that uh, digital advertising runs. The other example I'll give you is, you know, how many um, times have you used uh, online returns um, and then how many, on, how many times have you used online returns, perhaps maybe more than the retailer would prefer that you use their free shipping backwards and forwards several times, right? So what's developing right now in the market are the Uber scores, if you will. You know, the, these are the frequent flyers. This is the person who buys six dresses and returns five. And if they do that every single two weeks, it's just, I'm just losing, I'm, I'm eroding my average basket right? Every single time. So they're onto this. Companies are trying to figure out how to stop. Now, cur currently, the benefit of being out, you know, using digital channels and free shipping outweighs the drawback of having to put up with these things. But once you can connect the digital identity to these, I can identify, hey, don't actually give them free shipping this time because that's the same dress sent back and forth in five different sizes over five different weeks, right? That's, that's, and, 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 and to be fair, you know, <laughs> I think that we as consumers benefit from things like that, but, uh, but look at what's happening to retail today, right? They're under fire. And part of it is that they, they can't identify that. Amazon does. They, they have from the very beginning invested in the ability to analyze your purchase history over time. Yeah. You know, this last, uh, this last several months, it just seems like, you know, uh, uh, retailers are falling off the wagon because, uh, they're just getting worse and worse at what we, what we all think is become normal. You know, if if buying online is normal and returning something once in a while is normal, and the way you do it, and, and Amazon has kind of set the bar about that. There are other companies that, by the way, are doing a very good job, but there are other companies that are just terrible. I mean, that you got to call them up, they got to send you a label, you got to print the label, and then you got to take the label to the store. You know, I mean, Amazon, you just show up and uh, somehow they, they even know where your label. You don't have to give them a label. They give you a box. They do the, do the whole thing for you. And they make it so simple, you know. And so um, some of these companies have really, really fallen behind and it's really uh, terrible for them. So we're still in, in part A here, which is the gathering of the data. I, I want to shift over to, to the part B. And, and I know there's a bridge between A and B. 
uh, and we may have to do that another time. But uh, are we when when we're talking about gathering this data? Is this just like a database function where computers are just putting it together, and then there's a separate set of machines that are the uh, artificial intelligence machines that are analyzing it, making predictions, trying to make sense of all this stuff? I mean, how does that part work? Yeah. So the in, the industry terms that you'd hear. Um, you know, there's the, there's the storage and the identity, the identity being the primary record for the storage of data about people, right? You want to line that up against persons. Um, and so you'll have a digital ID in every one of the businesses that serves you, right? You might, you might have multiple, which is one of the problems that is being addressed, but ideally you have one and everything about you is matched to that. Orchestration is getting the right coordinates. So it's, it's, it's picking the right customer, maybe at the right time or the, at the right trigger or, you know, when you are X, right? That's orchestration. Personalization, that's the right content for that moment in time. And so there's actually three different core systems involved in these. And, and by the way, you know, these are systems that originally were like innovative custom builds and now are becoming software that everybody can buy. And so everyone's jumping onto this. But, but if you break down the functionalities of these systems, they're uh, data collection, identity matching, usually in the same system. There's an orchestration element to it, or maybe multiple systems handling it, but uh, usually one. And then there's a personalization engine, and that's lining up the content. Between the three of those, you've got right person, right place, right time, right message, all the things that you need to have the best shot at either convincing them or something um, that they should want, or you know, based on a trigger of knowing what they want, giving them the best offer that hopefully gets them into your market share and not your competitors. So, is 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 any of those three things? I mean, is that artificial intelligence? All three. Or? All three are. All three have have elements. All three are mostly. I mean, most of the the and and AI is different from machine learning. So I'll just I'll just give you one nuance on this. But most of the machine learning that we see going towards these use cases is in part two and three of what we just outlined, the orchestration and the personalization. Guessing what content would work, um, that is a very hard thing to do uh, at scale. Um, Guessing which customer based on which triggers, that's something that you can either kind of preset or you can let the machine make a recommendation as to what's working. So one thing that's becoming common is when you have these systems integrated correctly, you just watch what's already working and reinforce it. All you do is have a system that's looking at based on just random Brownian motion events, right? Who is going through which customer journeys as they're called. And then when you find one that works, amplify it, meaning more of the people who are coming in at the beginning of the story are funneled to the same experience or the same touch point that seems to accelerate them to the next one, you know, eventually leading to a purchase. And so the automated digital marketing systems are getting very sophisticated. Um, and also, you know, these are now things that you can buy. They're not things that you have to build. I mean, previously, this was the secret sauce of anyone who is building a Silicon Valley-based platform company or a social media company has to do the same thing, right? They have to be able to do that themselves for their own operations to then offer that to advertisers and say, hey, we can do this, you know, leave it to us. We'll figure out how to get your stuff in front of the right people they're doing the exact same thing, whether or not you do it yourself or you rely on Facebook to do it. Now they're becoming um, things that everyone can just purchase off the shelf and start integrating. So let me, let me ask, just if we boil it all down, very simple, like um, 
years ago, in the very beginning of the computing uh, world, uh, they would be like chess. And so what it would do is it would, it would analyze all the moves, yep. you know, like, so uh, moving your pawn is like a 2% move. And then this was a 7% move. And yep. this is a 9%. Yep. It would do all these calculations and it would say the best one is 13%. Do that one. Is that kind of what it's doing? It's saying that uh, this is a, this is a 2% uh, chance. This one's a 3%. This one's a 9%. So go with the, I, I mean, so let's feed the guy the, the 9% option because that's the one that's likely to be most successful. Yeah, and, and well, what you're talking about are different models. And I, and I love the chess analogy because that's how a lot of this math was built uh, and tested. And, and it, the, the same thing as chess is like uh, poker hands or blackjack yeah. hands. The, uh, the likelihood of a certain card coming out of the deck next is 7.9%. Yeah. And, and, the, and so you'd be better off to do something different. And, and there's a whole rhythm down. Yeah. All yeah. Works. And I mean, that's why they're banning, you know, in these major poker tournaments, cheating is now more possible than ever because you can have AI and ML telling you uh, what the best chance is based on these things. It's no longer like a. Well, they must, they must ban electronics. I mean, blackjack bans electronics. I mean, you, they can't stop you from doing it in your head. They can ask you to leave the casino, but they can't legally Correct. make you yeah. stop. And I mean, the chess analogy, so uh, not to, I won't go too too far down the nerdy track here, but those models that were um, doing weighted evaluations of different moves, uh, there's there was this whole debate in history of, of making these things. The current dominant model is called stockfish for chess, by the way, if you're interested. But the way we got to that is because mathematicians had all these different theories about which model would actually do well for chess. And chess is an unsolvable game. That means that there's no model that'll ever get it perfectly right, at least that we know of. Um, that still is, that is happening in the, in the marketing world. Um, all of those models, some of them actually in and of themselves, those models, right? The way that they handle different um, unsupervised learning paths for the machine learning. That's what's deciding. It's not, you know, rook to A7. It's give this person a discount or, Hey, you're about to lose this customer. And it's eerie how right they can get. Um, of course they can only be as right as the data that you feed them. Right. Right. Garbage yep. in, garbage yep. out. Yep. But, yeah. but that's why having information yourself collecting it is because data independence is becoming a mandatory for getting through the next decade. It re it really is. Just yeah. listening here. Um, you know, cause like, uh, you know, certain people have certain, uh, intuition, but we're subjective instead of objective. And so we go, no, 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 people, people are subjective. You know, we, we look and they go, even though it may be right in front of you, you know, you'll, you'll kind of like think about something in a different way. Cause you, you'll put your personal opinion or spin on it. Computers just are so objective. They're just mechanical. They're just machines. And they just always do the same thing over and over again. This is pretty, pretty fascinating. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I come up with this chess idea and you've got all these different words that explain it. Well, well, so let me try this again. I'll give, I'll give you my best shot at this one because you're putting your finger on something really important there, Joel. The, the, it's the old saying, and I forget who it's attributed to, but thoughts without feelings is meaningless. Feelings without thoughts is chaos, right? Um, and it's sort of true, uh, both as people, but also as computers. I mean, the reason why data is great is because it doesn't have emotion. It's not subject to cognitive biases or any of the things that we might, you know, see what we want to see or think that because something happened in one portion, the entirety is going to look like that. That's everyone's favorite cognitive bias. It's called composition bias and computers remove composition bias 
as long as you're accounting for the stats correctly. Um, that's, that's the real power is that we're getting these things to serve us by understanding us better, which is, which is, you know, I mean, that leads to you down the sci-fi route, but it's as simple as can I, you know, have a perfect memory. If you were to turn it like machine as human, there are folks who have eidetic memories. Um, there are also folks who have conditions that have perfect memories. Those are blessings and curses, right? The human brain, the healthy human brain forgets things. It's, it's designed to, on purpose. And if you can't, it's, it's a condition. I forget what it's called. No, it's a, it's a survival mechanism. I mean, you, you don't want to forget, you don't want to remember every bad day in your life. You know, you, 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 you try to forget the bad ones and learn from them. And I think you're totally right. So, and that's something that computers don't do unless they're told not to. Well, so that's called compilation. Yeah, that's what we do. We compile the past and, and we put it together. That's, there is computing, there are computer abstraction, right? Taking from many examples into a, a, a generic uh, representation of all examples. Those are things that computers do. Those are things that our minds can do. The question is, when does it get to the point where um, not just the, the Turing test, you know, you can have a conversation with a machine. When does it get to the point where the machines know what we want before we actually want it. Not before we know we want it, before we actually want it. That's like... There must be patterns that start to evolve about people who do certain things. And so as they learn those patterns, all the better. You know, we always look for the inside track. And this, this has been the inside track on, uh, on the way we think, on marketing information. And, you know, and although we've kind of talked about some stuff at kind of a crazy level, what I hope the listeners get is that by applying some of these techniques to uh, their marketing approaches, uh, that they can really start to have an edge on their, com- on their competitors. I mean, I talk about disrupting their competitors' future. What a better way to disrupt somebody's future than by getting better information, better intel, better insight than their competitors. So uh, this is, and we only scratch the surface here. I mean, we may have to revisit this conversation at some point in the future just to have some takeaways for everybody. I think if you're, if you're a business leader or you're looking to make investments in businesses, look for, look for two things. What is their strategy to be able to detect demand of whatever they do, whether that's having a conversation or you know analyzing thousands of records? And then what are they doing based off of what they can detect, the patterns? Because if they have a static way, if, they, if, they're, if they're not changing how they operate or they can't answer that question about, let's say that the demand changed, would your business change? Those are the ones that are kind of, that they've set their feet too, too strongly. And, and the ones that are flexible, the ones that can change based on changing demand, I mean, whether you want to call that a pivot or it's just a, you know, they, they just change their approach um, to market conditions. That, that, that's a major function. And by the way, this is the subject of a very new and emerging form of, um, of business valuation called data-based or, or information-based valuation. And so think about, think about those two things when you're looking to analyze the market at the micro level. It's, it's as simple as knowing more about your customer than your competition and then being able to take action on it faster. Well, listen, Max, thank you very much, man. This, is, this has been a, quite an extraordinary discussion. I really I appreciate what you bring to the table and thank you very much for sharing the inside track on... Uh, marketing intel and, and actionable information. Thanks, Joel. And we'll be in touch. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. 
For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Get the inside track on 20 top business trends for 2020 from Joel Block. Joel's insights bring Wall Street to your street so you can profit from the inside in 2020. Just text the word TREND to 72000. That's 72000. And download your free copy today. Grab your phone and get the inside track on business trends that affect you and your business. Just text the word TREND to 72000 for your copy now. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.